Thanks for pressing play. U.S. President Joe Biden recently warned about the possibility of Armageddon. He said, quote, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, end quote. President Biden went on to say, quote, we are trying to figure out what is Putin's offering. Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself where he does not only lose face, but significant power, end quote. Today, Rain Man David Sachs is back. David is super smart, super successful, and super controversial. Sachs is a legendary entrepreneur, category, and company builder, and now venture capitalist. He's the founder of a VC firm called Kraft Ventures. And in Silicon Valley, David Sachs is a living legend. You see, he was the founding chief operating officer of PayPal, founder and CEO of Yammer, which sold to uh, Microsoft for well over a billion dollars. And he has been an early investor in companies like Facebook, Twitter, Uber, SpaceX, Airbnb, Bird Scooters, Slack, and more. And today, he's also incredibly well known as one of the co-hosts of the All In podcast, which has become, if not the most popular business podcast in the world. It sure is close. It happens to be one of my favorites. Uh, and if you're not listening to it, I highly recommend you check it out. Now, if you care about our world and the situation we're in, and you appreciate real dialogue, you're going to love everything about this episode. And pay special attention to the part of the conversation where David and I compare and contrast today's situation to the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And uh, man, do I ever appreciate that you are here. Readers like you have made Category Pirate's latest book a number one bestseller. It's called Snow Leopard, How Legendary Writers Become a Category of One. And it's been number one in marketing, writing, and publishing. And if you care about how to create legendary content that makes a big difference and a big impact, check it out today on Amazon.com. It's called Snow Leopard. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So, David, you've got something you want to read me or read to me? <laughs> Is that bedtime stories with David Sachs? Quote, first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have the threat of a nuclear war if, in fact, things continue down the path they are going. We are trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp. Where does he find a way out? And he continued, we've got a guy I know fairly well by instead of Putin. He's not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological chemical weapons because his military, as you might say, significantly underperforming. Uh, and then, quote, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tackle nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon, Biden added. Really stark and significant remarks from POTUS tonight. So that was what he said. This is a this is Natasha Bertrand. You know, Biden is, I'd say, most likely to tell us what he really thinks uh, when he's speaking off the cuff, you know, as opposed to a teleprompter. That's when he's most likely to blurt out the truth. <laughs> well, and it was lo love Trump or hate Trump. He was always off the cuff because nobody could keep him on any kind of a script anyway. 
Right, right. So yeah, I think I think Biden is telling us what he actually thinks and what's what's what they're actually talking about in the White House right now. It's my guess. So there were two things that I found surprising and maybe even a little shocking when I read this myself, David, which was number one, wh- why is he talking about Armageddon? Why isn't he talking about peace? And he, I, I haven't heard him talk about peace much, if at all, since the war started. And then the second thing I found shocking was he talked about sort of Putin's, uh, Putin's got to find an off ramp. Well, at some level, doesn't the United States have to consider creating an off ramp for him? Right. Yeah. My reaction to this was, you know, man who can't see two steps ahead suddenly realizes where his policy is leading. We're the ones who have refused to engage in any sort of diplomacy or any sort of negotiated settlement. We've refused. Our strategy is not to provide him with an off-ramp. So you're right. What Biden is doing right here is refuting his entire strategy. This idea that we could basically just get involved in this Ukrainian war and it was all just upside for us and there'd be no conceivable downside. Our own security wasn't at risk. His own words are putting the lie to that. It was his policies that have gotten us to the brink of a Cuban Missile Crisis situation. So you're absolutely right. Now, that being said, I still thought it was incredibly useful for Biden to say what he said, because the first step of getting out of a problem is acknowledging that you're in one. So this was a good first step for Biden to at least acknowledge that we are facing a threat of a nuclear use in Ukraine that could escalate into you know nuclear war. And the next step is for him to realize that he needs to change his policies so we can avoid a situation like that. Now, a while back, we had uh, David Gergen on, and he was uh, um, pointing out carefully that a tactical nuke is very different than, you know, what most of us, I think, think about, which is Nagasaki and Hiroshima and those horrible images and, and so forth, that it's much smaller, much more focused, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But that said, I don't know, you tell me, uh, a nuke's a nuke, right? I, I love the arguments that I'm now hearing from the uh, the foreign policy establishment, which is, it's, it's just a tack nuke that we're no, talking he, he about. Wasn't, we're not talking. I don't think he was trying to do that. I, I just think he was trying to contrast the yeah. two. But uh, Okay, I, well, I, fair enough, because I heard Ben Rhodes saying that last night on MSNBC. So the MSNBC commentator, like, broke in with breaking news. Biden just said that we're at the brink of nuclear Armageddon. And Ben Rhodes was like, oh, you know, we're just talking about tactical nukes here. Like you said, uh, they may not be the size of a Hiroshima or Nagasaki type. It can be, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, listen, if if a tactical nuclear weapon gets used in Ukraine, then the whole world will be different. And And this thing could escalate very quickly into a larger scale nuclear war. You had Petraeus on the Sunday shows last weekend saying that if Putin uses attack nuke, the U.S. should respond by hitting every Russian military target in Ukraine. Well, again, think two steps ahead. How do you think the Russians would react to that, given that they clearly don't have the military might to stand up to the U.S. in terms of conventional arms? That's not where they, quote unquote, invested in their military. They spent their money. They have a lot less of it than we do because their economy is only one-tenth the size of ours, but they spent a lot more of their military dollars on nukes. And they've got a lot of the latest technology there for nuclear weapons and ballistic 
missile systems and so on. And they've got 6,000 nuclear weapons. So Petraeus is now recommending that the U.S. get directly involved in this war by destroying the Russian military. And he doesn't think they're going to fire back on us with nukes. What is the vital interest that America has in this conflict that would compel us to risk nuclear war? Like, no one has explained that. That's the remarkable thing about it. So, um, so yeah, I don't really buy this argument about it's just attack nuke. I like as soon as you start hearing people talking about that there could be an acceptable nuclear war. This is like right out of Doctor Strangelove, which I, I went back and had to watch it the other night. Oh, did you really? What was happening? But if it, yeah, did it freak the shit out of you? <laughs> it it's like I mean I want like everyone to be required to watch this. That like Petraeus sounded just like the uh, George C. Scott character, where you know. Um, He's basically talking about acceptable losses if we, you know, engage in a nuclear war. The idea is that, you know, we got to hit the Russians first, because if we hit the Russians first, then their response will be limited. We'll be able to knock out 90% of their nukes is sort of the argument he's making. And Well, we all know from, from recent history how successful the U.S. is at preemptive war strikes. Remember that whole discussion? Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's funny that uh, the president who's paid, played by Peter Sellers is like, well, wait, wouldn't 10% get through? And George C. Scott's like, well, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, you know, <laughs> you know, 10 to 20 million people might uh, die depending on the breaks. You know, this is sort of like the logic. I mean, like, uh, you know, General Turgeson, I think is what the character is called. So Petraeus has gone, you know, full Dr. Strangelove here. This is insane. We're not mm. going to we're not going to hit and destroy this the russian military okay like why like we they have not attacked us okay this is a war over a donbass region that the united states has never in its history had a vital interest in no american president has ever declared us as a country to have a vital national interest in who rules this donbass region now i think we did some good early on in this war preventing Putin from decapitating and toppling the Zelensky regime. But at the, and so I think we can be proud of that accomplishment. But now, what is this war really about? It's about these ethnically divided, disputed territories like Donbass, like Crimea. Crimea, by the way, is three, it's like 80% Russian. Three quarters of them want to go with Russia. So if we were to follow the principle of self-determination, we should be open to that idea of a negotiated settlement that involves Crimea going back to Russia. But it is State Department policy that we will never, ever recognize Crimea being part of Russia. So I, I don't really understand like what's going on here because we ha have no vital national interest in getting involved with uh, a, a war with Russia, never mind a nuclear war. And yet that is what is going on here. And Biden himself has said that there's no such thing as just attack nuke being used that doesn't lead to Armageddon. So, yeah, this is like this is very disturbing. And what what is disturbing to me is Putin keeps uh, saber rattling around. Hey, I have nukes and I'll use them. And the United States does not respond with trying to sort of take the temperature down and have a peace right. conversation. And the arm. The other thing about this Armageddon um, statement that Biden just made, it seemed to me to be an emotional reaction to Putin saying, hey, listen, if you keep threatening these nukes, you launch one, we're going to have Armageddon. I mean, he, he I, I read it as him speaking 
to Putin. Is that how you read it? Maybe. I mean, the 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 best interpretation you can have of the Armageddon statement is that he's trying to establish deterrence. Um, and 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 maybe you could say that about Petraeus as well, as they're trying to create fear in the Russians that as a way to incentivize them not to not to go nuclear. The problem is that the reasons why the the Russians might escalate to the use of nuclear weapons is because they're losing the war by conventional means. And we like we were talking about, we don't give Putin the golden off ramp. And it's widely believed that if he loses this war, he will be toppled. He will face a violent overthrow, probably from hardliners in his own government, who are already there's a lot of hardliners in Russia, in the military, um, in their Duma, in um, you know, these military bloggers and so forth who are intensely nationalistic. And they've been criticizing Putin for being too limited in this war. They're they're like they're criticizing him for why did you make this a limited military operation. It should have been a war from the beginning. Instead of going in with 200,000 troops, you should have gotten heavy with a million. So these are the, this is the threat to Putin and his own government. And it's not liberal reformers. I mean, as much as I would love to see Putin replaced with a liberal reformer, that is not who we're likely to get if there is regime change. The fact of the matter is that Putin has replaced or driven out or killed or jailed all the liberal reformers in that government. The only people that are left are hardliners and nationalists. So Putin is under pressure from hardliners in his own government to basically keep escalating this war. If he loses the war, he could be violently overthrown. He'll probably be killed. That's the fate generally of Russian leaders who lose wars. So this was the whole point of giving him the the golden bridge. And yet we haven't. So I'm not saying that it would be his first choice to use tactical nukes, but he is incentivized. If he's facing his violent overthrow and death, he's incentivized to use every weapon at his disposal to prevent that crushing defeat. So this idea that, well, we can just deter him from doing it. I don't know how you deter somebody whose alternative is, you know, certain death. Anybody who read Art of War knows that one of the key, th- the greatest war ever is one never fought. Right. And if there's going to be one, we have to find a way for the opponent to get out of it in, in a face-saving way. And right now, I mean, I, I, I think you're probably tracking this closer than I am, but I'm tracking it as a layman, and I look at it and I go, well, if the choices he's facing are, uh, you have to go back with your tail between your legs and tell your people that you lost and that all these people died for nothing um, or get toppled, uh, he's in a corner that he's got to fight his way out of. And so I don't, this is why I don't understand why the United States uh, or anyone else for that matter is not trying to have, you know, Macron tried to do it in the beginning, but right. who is talking about peace? Who is talking about, I mean, last time you you and I had this conversation, you you, you stated very clearly there is an architecture of a peace agreement here. And yet there's been no discussion. And so I just don't understand what this fucking warmongering is about. We, I wrote a, an article at the very beginning of this conflict about how the United States had refused to engage in diplomacy in the year leading up to this war. We had many opportunities. And then at the beginning of the war, we had similar opportunities. And not only did we not lead the peace, you're right, it was people like Macron and um, er, you know Erdogan from Turkey. There was a Turkish peace process. Even remember, Naftali Bennett went. 
we were not even involved in the conversation. We were not even trying. The fact of the matter is the United States has pursued a policy of not willing to negotiate at all with Putin, not just in the months since the invasion, but in the year leading up to it. Remember, Putin put the troops on Russia's border in January of last year when Biden first came into office. This was a slow motion invasion, this idea that he just went in there overnight. No, they were sitting there for over a year. He wanted to negotiate, and the administration was totally unwilling to negotiate any of the key demands. Listen to Jeffrey Sachs, international development uh, economist, you know, liberal guy, very well sourced in the Obama administration. He, he called up the White House, he said, in December and said to them, listen, he, he's very well connected in Russia because he was over there in the 90s trying to help Yeltsin convert their economy from communism to a, a more of a free market economy. In any event, he calls up the White House in December and says, listen, I think unless you compromise on NATO expansion, meaning bringing Ukraine into NATO, which was the Biden administration's goal, if you don't compromise on that, I think there's going to be a war here. And the message he got back was there will be absolutely no compromise on this issue of NATO expansion. And then sure enough, you know, in December, the, the Russians uh, proposed uh, what they wanted in a letter to the U.S. It was a virtual ultimatum saying, basically, if, if we can't get this, it's going to be or else. I mean, they're saying they're going to invade. And so then in January, uh, our Secretary of State Blinken met with Sergei Lavrov, the, the Russian um, ambassador, and there was a month of intense negotiations there. And Blinken kept making public statements that he said, literally, there has been no change, there will be no change. He said that NATO's door uh, is open and will remain open. So the, basically, they flatly rejected any compromise on the key Russian demand, which was NATO's open door policy with respect to Ukraine. All we had to do was close that door or close it for some period of time, 10 years, 20 years, and you probably could have avoided this war. And since then, there's been no willingness on the part of the United States to engage in serious peace negotiations. There was a proposal in the very early days of the war, March, April timeframe, that Turkish proposal that you mentioned, where it looked like Zelensky was ready to accept it. Remember, in the very early days of the war, Zelensky finally came out and said, we're willing to accept no NATO. You know, we will deal. He said he wanted to meet with Putin, Zelensky. He said he wanted peace. Remember? Yeah. I mean, in those early days of the war, there seemed to be there was still an opening, you know, because not as many people have been killed. Now, now that so many people have been killed on both sides, that people get very dug in and their demands actually escalate and it gets harder to find peace. This is what happens in every war. This is why you want to nip it in the bud, not allow it just to keep spiraling more and more out of control, because the natural tendency is, is for these things to keep escalating out of control until both sides are either exhausted or one side's totally destroyed. So that's the path that we're on right now. But back to this, the point about the Turkish proposal, back in this March, April timeframe, Zelensky said publicly, I'm willing to give up on NATO. That was going to be the basis of it. And then there's articles that Boris Johnson went there and said, we don't want you making a deal with Putin. We want to weaken Putin, not make a deal with him. And then it fell apart. So the West, I mean, specifically the United States and, and Great Britain, which, you know, they're kind of our, our poodles on this. We, we have been against the idea of, um, of finding a negotiated settlement. And instead, we have pursued this idea that we can use Ukraine as a proxy to weaken Russia. In the words of Secretary of Defense Austin, he said the goal of this war is to weaken Russia so they can never 
ever invade anyone again, essentially knocking them out of the ranks of the great powers. That's the American aim of this war. It's it's actually not very idealistic. It's actually quite Machiavellian. But the problem with it is, even if you were just to analyze it in Machiavellian terms, like in other words, not morally, not forget about all the people who've been killed unnecessarily. The, the problem with it is that if you want to knock Russia out of the ranks of the great powers, you want to basically perpetrate a regime change operation in Moscow, what do you think they're going to be willing to do? Like I said, they will use every weapon at their disposal to prevent that. So now we're finally at the precipice of that. We, and Biden, it, only now, only now does Biden realize where his policies have led. Now, I'm glad he's realized it, but now what we need to do is walk back from this insane brink that we're at. So let me ask you this question, something I've been wondering about. I actually had this conversation with a, a dear friend of mine who's one of the smartest people I know uh, yesterday morning, which is we, the United States, and I think a lot of the, let's just say, Western world have been completely wrong about Russia's capability. Early on in this war, part of the defense for or part of the reasoning for why we needed to be involved was if the Ukraine fell, Russia could keep going and this could be this could turn into you know something very significant and and so forth and so on. And so this tyrant needed to be stopped. Right. Well now of course we know that we radically overestimated their military capability. Uh, and with support from weapons and intelligence and so forth from the United States, the fierce Ukrainians have done what appears to be uh, pretty well here. So with all that said, is it possible, David, do you think there's a chance that, well, they've done all this work and made this huge investment to have these nukes, that we are overestimating their nuclear capability? I feel like that would be an unwise assumption. It would be a wise assumption or an unwise assumption? Unwise. 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 You can't assume. Yeah, I, I, I hear all sorts of wishful thinking about their nukes, like maybe they won't work. They're Soviet-era nukes, which I don't think is true. I think they've had a program to keep them updated. Or another thing you'll hear is, well, the chain of command won't follow Putin's orders on this. They will rebel and overthrow him before they fall. Really? Just five minutes ago, you're saying that one of the reasons why Putin is so ruthless is that he's assiduously weeded out subordinates who he does not completely trust. He's completely paranoid. And he selected four subordinates who will be completely loyal to him. Isn't that what you just told us five minutes ago? But now you're saying that his chain of command is not going to follow his orders. And by the way, you want that that's your insurance policy for avoiding nuclear war is believing that his most loyal and trusted subordinates won't follow his orders. No, thanks. I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want to be counting on that. That's insane. So look, I do believe that the nuclear threat is real. I do believe that I've never thought Putin is bluffing. There's nothing about this man that should lead you to believe that he's bluffing about this. Right. And, you know, on the one hand, the foreign policy establishment says that he's a madman, he's a dictator, he's ruthless, he's a killer. And then they say, well, no, he must be bluffing. Well, but why? I mean, if he is a ruthless killer, wouldn't he do everything in his power, again, to pre prevent his total defeat? So I just think that this is madness, the idea that we just keep blithely shrugging off this idea that he would just never use nukes or that he would never be able to use nukes. I think the nuclear threat is real. Now, the threat that is inflated is the one that you mentioned, that this idea that if we don't stop him here in Ukraine, he's going to march on to take over the rest of Western Europe, you know, not stopping until he gets to, you know, Germany or Paris or something. But that's ridiculous. And it was always ridiculous. And it's especially ridiculous now. 
it's really clear that his military barely functions beyond its immediate supply lines in Russia. The idea that he poses a threat to NATO is a bit ridiculous. And by the way, the EU, their economy is something like 10 times bigger. Ten to, and then the US's economy is 15 times bigger. He never had the wealth to wage a war at the scale of taking on all of Europe and, and on the scale of, of waging an offensive operation at the scale of the European theater. So it was already the case before this war that that threat was inflated. It's clear now that he does not have the capability to challenge the West or NATO. The only risk he poses to all of us is nukes. And, you know, that wouldn't be a risk if we weren't trying to perpetrate a regime change operation. So why are we doing this again? It doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm for the principle of self-determination. Just to be clear, I think we accomplished something by preventing, again, the toppling of Zelensky's regime and, and the, um, and, you know, we thwarted his, you know, Putin's attempt to install a, a puppet government there in, in Kiev. Um, but, but beyond that, you know, now, now what we're fighting over are these disputed territories in Crimea and the Donbass. And it seems to me that this is the point at which we should be saying, okay, let's find a negotiated settlement as opposed to, again, trying to pursue these maximalist demands that risk nuclear war. Well, and to further your point, if Putin's not nuts, if he, you have argued he's acting logically from his point of view, uh, let's assume that's the case. If he got a big Scooby snack called part of Crimea and part of the Dunbass or whatever the right set of Scooby snacks are, <laughs> that that he could argue at home that he achieved something and they'd have a, a little something to show for it. From a Zelensky perspective, from a U.S. perspective, from a NATO perspective, isn't peace a better answer. Look, I understand they don't want to give up any of their home. I get all that stuff. I get all of it. Right. And at the same time, if you say, hey, listen, we're going to give you this and don't fucking come back. I don't know. Maybe he does. If right. he can go home and say right. this was all worth it. If 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 we believe in the principle of self-determination, which I think we all do, then the right answer for these eastern territories would be to hold a referendum, not the sham referendum that Putin held. I know that that's a joke, but why not use his words against him when he says he's just implementing the principle of self-rule? Why don't we say, okay, well, look, let's hold a referendum here with for these territories. We can do it under the auspices of UN peacekeepers and election monitors from neutral countries who are both willing to trust. Let, let, this, we let the that? Swiss overlook this thing because they're neutral. <laughs> it, could be, it could be a Turkish delegation or something. I don't, you know, right. like those are details like we worked out. Uh, why, why, why don't we, uh, you know, something like that, right? Um, now, I think we know for a certainty how Crimea would vote. Like I said, they're like 80% Russian and recent polling before this war showed that three quarters of them wanted to be part of uh, Russia. And hmm. historically, they always were part of Russia until Khrushchev basically transferred it to the, under the control of Ukraine, but that was when they're all part of the USSR, so it didn't really matter. It was six of one, half dozen of another. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's no question that if you believe in the principle of self-determination, I don't think there's any doubt where Crimea would, would, would go. Now, I, I agree that in this Donbass region, it's complicated. I don't know how they would vote. I think they were something like 
60% ethnically Russian, but there are a lot of Ukrainians as well. And not all the uh, ethnic Russians wanted to go back with Russia. So, and I don't know how they would feel now. And I don't even know. Um, I mean, the, that whole uh, area has been so devastated by war. There's so many refugees. I don't even know who's still there to basically vote. So it's very messy and very complicated. But I think that in concept, we should have been willing to figure out some sort of diplomatic approach that involves self-determination for that region. And, and if the people of that region vote to be part of Ukraine, great, then we support that. But if they vote to be part of Russia, then we can accept that compromise too. So it seems to me like, I don't know why that wasn't our policy from the, from the get-go, but it, it wasn't. It's never been our policy. Our State Department policy today, which has been asserted over and over again, is that we will never, like all caps never, recognize Crimea being part of Russia. We just refuse to contemplate that. And if you really believe in self-determination, that should be the first thing that we look at as a way to uh, resolve this conflict. But yet quite some time ago now, David, and I know you heard it, uh, Biden said that Putin had to go. Right. Yeah. He tells us what he thinks when he blurts out the truth. Right. He said this man cannot remain in power. But like all regime change efforts that the United States has participated in for many, many decades, they don't exactly always go well. I mean, to your point, it would be wonderful if we had a democracy-loving, freedom-promoting, you know, in my opinion, entrepreneurial-supporting leader of Russia. That would be great. I when, when you know when Mikhail Gorbachev died, I had a little moment. I, I remember those times so well. I remember the fall of the Berlin Wall very well, and I remember many of the things that he said. And you know, unless I'm unless that was so many whiskeys ago, I'm getting it wrong. Gorbachev felt like a guy who was trying to create a peaceful world and a successful post-USSR Russia that could thrive. Um, and then, of course, shit went horribly wrong. Um, and so if, if there was a new Gorbachev, that would be incredible. But uh, to your point, right. who the fuck knows where that's going to come from? Yeah, I don't think we're going to get Gorbachev 2.0 if Putin is toppled. Certainly not during a war like this. I think you're going to get hardliners in there who might say, why didn't you use tech nukes already? Like, what are you waiting for? This is like the this is our trump card. Why wouldn't right, you we could it? get a lot worse? Absolutely. A lot worse. Well, and and to your point about regime change operations, let's look at the history of America's recent regime change operations. We always get the same or worse. So Afghanistan, we start with the Taliban. The Taliban are back in control. In Syria, it's still Assad. We thought we'd get rid of him. Instead, you know, like something like half a million people in Syria died as a result of it wasn't just us, but I've been killed in that war. And something like 7 million refugees, It's the devastation's been incredible. So Assad's still in power there, and we made it worse. We didn't do anything to make it better. And then in Iraq, we took out Saddam Hussein, and but now it's basically an Iranian proxy state. Oh, no, it's and going it's, great over there right now. Right. It led to, it led to the creation of ISIS. Um, that's where that came from. Then you've got in Libya... We took out Gaddafi, Gaddafi, and now it's basically turned into anarchy, and there's like open-air slave markets, and this is insane. So, you know, what happens is we describe these guys as the Hitler of the month on our way in, and we get everyone riled up, like, we got to take this guy out. He's the new Hitler. So we take him out, and we get the same or worse years later, 
And then we tuck our tails between our legs and quietly leave. Nobody says a word. And then all of a sudden we just stop talking about the Hitler of the month who's still over there. Assad's still over there. You know, we called him a Hitler too. Well, wait, so we just stopped talking about it. So in other words, we get ourselves whipped up into taking these guys out. And then when it goes horribly awry, it's just, we're not intellectually honest about it and say, well, that didn't work. We just stopped talking about it. Well, and and to your point on Afghanistan, I mean, I was just about as furious as I could possibly be. My wife and I invested a material amount of money uh, with NGOs who were getting people out because I thought if our government has failed these people who worked for us and supported us in Afghanistan, then the citizens of this country need to try to do what we can. And so if you look at what's going on in Afghanistan right now, all of the people in Kabul who we helped create this new world, well, now they're all pushed all the way back. An entire generation of people are pushed all the way back. And in some ways, I have Afghani friends. I don't know. I haven't been there. So, But I'm hearing from the, some Afghani friends that I have who still have family there that they're trying to get out. Then in a lot of ways, Kabul is worse because... If you live in Kabul, chances are you were either directly or indirectly working with or for the United States for some period over the last 20 years. And now the Taliban is trying to kill you as a result of that. In addition, the economy has, of course, never been worse. And so the people of Afghanistan, best I can tell, are royally fucked. And there's zero conversation of consequence in the United States about all of the blood and treasure and the fact that not only was there no outcome that was beneficial to the United States, you know, we could have taken out Saddam Hussein without ha- uh, without having had to do the war. Um, and what Afghanis tell me, and again, it's just one guy's set of conversations with a few folks and doing some reading, but um, Afghanistan's not a fun fucking place to be, and it might even be worse than it was after the Soviets left, but it, no matter what, it's certainly super fucked up, and to your point, we, we don't talk about it. And so um, let's say there is regime change. If, it, if what happens in Russia is what happens in Afghanistan or Libya after regime change, holy fuck. Right. No, you're right. I mean, look, all these regime change wars have backfired horribly. There's a study by Brown University called the Cost of War Study. Something like 900,000 direct deaths as a result of the U.S.'s war on terrorism that was basically the justification for going into all these countries. Uh, That's just the direct deaths, um, civilian and military deaths. There are other studies that um, calculate excess mortality. So basically, what is the number of people who appear to have died? Um, You know, kind of like we did with COVID with these excess mortality numbers. something like 5 million people. So in other words, like, you know, if you remember it was shock and awe when we went in to Iraq, what were we doing that first night we blew everything up? We we're blowing up all the, the, uh, the water treatment facilities, the wastewater treatment, like food. I mean, uh, the electrical grid, I mean, if I remember electrical correctly. Grid. Yeah. We sent these guys back to the stone ages hospital. I mean, what do you think the result of that is going to be, you know, materially reduced standard. There's of no medical and- care right now in Afghanistan. For the for the most part, right. So in any event, so so the the nine hundred thousand to a million number might actually understate the number significantly. In addition to that, the material the the cost in terms of treasure is something like eight trillion dollars from the war on terror. So you would think that after twenty years of this hyperactive policy, where we involve ourselves all over the world in these regime change operations, 
you would think there'd be some learning, some humility about our ability to affect these countries in the direction that we would like. By the way, I'm not saying that I like any of these regimes, okay? I just don't believe that the United States sitting over here can go in there and pick and choose the leaders of these countries and and socially engineer them in a way to get the results we want. Well, um, yeah, to, to your point, look, we tried this under the Bush administration in Afghanistan and in Iraq. We tried to impose democracy. It didn't fucking work. As a matter of fact, it, it looks like, and I'm no international relations expert, but it looks like not only did it backfire, but on as certain dimensions and maybe more than a few dimensions, both countries are actually worse off and the people of those countries. You know, I remember when um, Thomas Friedman at the very, very beginning of the Iraq war after 9-11, he said, what we don't know is, is Iraq a function of Saddam or Saddam a function of Iraq? And we're about to find out. And between forces within the country and to your point earlier, forces outside the country. I don't know. I don't Is it worse? I, I don't know. It's certainly not fucking better. And so this idea, this idealistic idea that we all want to love that this, we're going to spread democracy around the world and inspire. It, it's, it's a great idea. But what we do know is we can't force it on anybody. We've tried. It really does not work. Right. Exactly. And so I don't understand the end game here. Look, I'm very sympathetic and empathetic towards the Ukrainian people. I myself, I'm trying to do some things to support Ukrainian tech entrepreneurs because I, like I think you, believe that entrepreneurship is a critical component of creating a legendary country and society. And entrepreneurs, you know, create value where there wasn't value before. And so there's, you know, and, and I think all of us want a successful democratic Ukraine, much like it was and 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 right. even further because there was corruption and, you know, so so I think we understand. I think many of us want that. I just don't understand how this is going to end, David. Right, exactly. I mean, I think so. I think, look, I think what we're talking about here is that if the goal of perpetuating this conflict is to weaken Russia, knock it out of the ranks of the great powers and perpetrate regime change in Moscow, that was never something we should have pursued. And I do believe that that can significantly contributed to our unwillingness to engage in diplomacy because I think we thought we were getting something out of this war. But now it has escalated to the point where it is actually posing significant risk to us. And look, like you said, I think we accomplished something in preventing Putin from decapitating the Ukrainian government. But again, I think that there, there are always three pieces to this to this sort of conflict or to this country. There's sort of the Western 80% of Ukraine, which is, um, is largely aligned with the West. They want to be part of the EU. And I'm glad that they have the right to self-determination. And, you know, I'm glad that they were able to repulse Putin from that. Then you've got this like Eastern 20%, this Donbass region, which is ethnically divided. And it has been the source of a civil war since 2014. And it's a it's one of these, you know, very bloody ethnic uh, conflicts like you get in the Balkans all the time, and we should be trying to figure out a solution for that that involves some sort of compromise. And then you've got this Crimea region, which is like I said, eighty percent Russian, which clearly that should go back to Russia. So there's some that was always the contours of a deal, and we never were willing to pursue that. So now the question is: Is the Biden administration going to be willing? to have egg on its face 
and pursue that kind of deal. Because if they don't, I don't understand how we're going to basically climb down from this, this brink that we're on. You know, I'm not even sure it would be that much egg. Maybe it would be some, but I, I think most Americans want peace and some compromise is often required. And if I, excluding the horrible loss of life and pain and suffering, but from a purely domestic point of view here in the U.S., I look at it and go, this couldn't come at a worse fucking time. Totally. Our own house is on fire. And as somebody who cares about entrepreneurship and technology and so forth, I look at it and go, hey, fucking A, Q4, to, Q4 is really hard for most entrepreneurs and CEOs that I know. Q1's probably going to be really fucking hard. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But this war, this overhang of this war is a big part of it. And uh, you guys on the All In podcast, I think, have done a wonderful job of sort of shining light on some of the downstream issues that are now starting to show up around famine. Obviously, you know, we now have the Saudis cutting uh, oil production uh, uh, Russian oil is out of the picture for a lot of a lot of the Western world. And so um, oil prices starting starting to look scary, you know, of course, which drives up the cost of fucking everything. It's not just at the pump. It's the cost you pay for bananas and Cheerios and everything else, because everything gets delivered um, via something that uses fossil fuels and on and on and on, uh, you know, the, the, on the, on the all in podcast, you guys have talked a lot about the horrible famine uh, situation because crops didn't get planted in the spring in Ukraine around for wheat. And so uh, they didn't get harvested at anywhere near the normal levels. And now we're heading into the winter. And so there's this real risk of some meaningful famine as a result of uh, Ukraine being the breadbasket and sort of not being able to do what it needs to do. And so there just seems to be a lot of escalating impacts that were, that are downstream that are starting to feel not very downstream anymore. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, some of us have been warning about this since the beginning of the year that if we allow this continue, this conflict to continue and escalate, it could spiral out of control. It could lead to, you know, worldwide famine. It could lead to a gigantic recession in Europe that then uh, causes an even deeper recession, or it could contaminate and create a global recession, including here in the U.S. And then most importantly, it could eventually lead to a nuclear use uh, in Ukraine, which could even spill over and escalate into World War III. So th this idea that this war was ever in the U.S. interest, I think it was so risky and foolish. And there was never, again, a, a serious attempt to negotiate a, a resolution or an early off-ramp. Yes. Now, sort of turning to the United States, obviously, uh, we're getting closer and closer to the midterms. And by, by the way, just, just to add one thing to that, because now I see there's a lot of people on Twitter who have this point of view that this was mostly in response to Elon. So earlier in the week, I, I saw Elon your, tweeted your his, piece for Newsweek. Yeah. So go. Yeah. Elon. Yeah. Well, so it started with Elon tweeting his own proposal for a potential peace deal. And it was very much along the lines of what I've been saying here today and what we talked about many months ago, because everyone who understands this conflict kind of understands there's these three regions. There's, again, the Western part. He's like, obviously, that stays Ukrainian. It's 80% of the country. You got this Donbass region, you got Crimea. He said that um, Donbass, you do elections to figure out what the people there want. Crimea goes back to Russia. And then you basically secure the water supply uh, 
between Donbass and Crimea. So the, 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 the theory on why Putin annexed, um, uh, was it Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia was to ensure the land bridge and the water supply between Donbass and Crimea. So that's what Elon was saying is, so he put together this proposal. It wasn't a bad proposal. I'm sure like there's many details to figure out. It was a tweet length proposal, but you had like a total hysteria form over the fact like, you know, ordering Elon to stay in his lane as if he doesn't know what he's talking about. He actually does pretty much know what he's talking about. He pointed out that if uh, we don't resolve this conflict and especially if we try to take back Crimea from Russia, you're, you have, I'd say, a likely nuclear use. So he, he put all these ideas forward. And what was the result? The result was that Zelensky himself came online and accused Elon of being pro-Russian. And Elon is the guy who gave Starlink to the Ukrainian war effort at an out-of-pocket cost of like $80 million. So this idea that he is... To make sure the Ukraine had, had the internet from the start of this war. Yeah, exactly. And there were articles about how Starlink may have saved Zelensky's life because um, without internet, they couldn't have controlled drones and communications and things like that. And to put a fine point on it, the Russians were blowing up telecommunications infrastructure. I mean, it's not a, right. everybody understands in war in the beginning, what do you do? You attack core infrastructure, water, heating, bridges. And today the internet is as important and one might argue more important than some of those other things. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he was very helpful, as I understand it, to the Ukrainian war effort. And yet even he, after making those contributions, would be accused of being quote unquote pro-Russian or a, or a basically a, a a, a Putin puppet or something. And there were, you know, these were, there were uh, many commentators who denounced Elon as somehow being an agent of the Kremlin for merely putting forth a peace deal. So for example, David Frum, who writes for the Atlantic, who yes. is, he's basically a, you know, a neocon warmonger. Uh, he used to be part of the, the Bush Cheney administration. He wrote the Axis of evil since that speech, which Bush gave, which was very deleterious to American security. In any event, he has now switched political parties, and he's you know part of the, the you know part of the the left now, and he's platformed by the Atlantic. I don't know what Lorraine Powell Jobs is thinking, but he literally accused Elon of float of quote unquote floating a trial balloon on behalf of Russian sources. So in other words, he tried to discredit this peace deal as literally being planted by mysterious unknown. Russian agents that Elon is secretly fronting for. I mean, seriously, without any evidence whatsoever. And this is somebody who's taken seriously and respected in uh, foreign policy circles. This is someone who's listened to, you know, again, the Atlantic is like the arbiter of liberal, liberal respectability. And it's a great publication. I mean, I know it says a lot of things you probably don't agree with, but (laughs) (laughs) no, I know it's a smart publication. Yeah. Yeah, But the thing I don't understand about this is sort of the Alex Jonesing of fucking everything that you can just say shit and pull it out of your ass. And it's like, what are you even talking about? Do you know this? How do you know this point? That is such a good point. I mean, how many times are we hearing that this or that Trump person is 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 making some conspiracy theory without evidence? And here comes David from just tweeting this and probably getting like 30,000 likes. It's insane. But my point, my larger point about this is that anybody who now dares to put forward any kind of diplomatic solution or peace proposal is basically denounced as being pro-Russian. 
that's insane. I mean, you know, it, it, what that's designed to do is deter people who just want to see an end to this conflict from speaking up. But isn't it interesting that some of this warmongering uh, or a bunch of this warmongering is coming from the left? It's it's uh, this is it's one weird. Of, this is one of the really insane things about um, our politics right now is that there used to be an anti-war left. And specifically, you'll recall that one of the reasons why Obama beat Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary back in 2008 and went on to become president is that Obama opposed the Iraq war and Hillary Clinton voted for it. Right. And so the left at that time. And he pounded her with that. Absolutely. And she deserved it. And she said, well, I relied, I relied on the intel we had at the time. We thought he had WMD, da, 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 but it didn't matter. He, he, he painted her with that brush as a warmonger and it worked. Right. So the left at that time was very much against the, these insane regime change wars in the Middle East, the forever wars perpetrated by the Bush-Cheney foreign policy. And that's one of the reasons they supported Obama and, and helped him become president. But the crazy thing is, where are those Bush Cheney staffers today? In the wake of Trump, a lot of them joined the Democratic Party. I know it seems hard to believe, but it's folks like David Frum and Bill Kristol and Victoria Newland, who's Biden's, um, you know, uh, she's the Undersecretary of State for Eastern European Affairs for Russia. She used to be Dick Cheney's foreign policy advisor. So, like all these Bush Cheney people, all these neocons joined the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party has basically become, the establishment wing of it has become extremely militaristic and interventionist. It is totally insane. And just to give you another example of, of this weird, um, like, flippening that's happened. So, Obama, you know who got I like that like, word, flippening. <laughs> right. That's a good one. No, it's, I, it, it's, it, it, you watch it. That, that's going to be in Wikipedia within uh, three weeks. Flippening. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah. No, this is insane because, you know, I... Um, I mean, I, I sometimes think that I'm I'm just a 1960s liberal. You know, I'm anti-war. I'm for free speech. You know, um, but somehow, like, I'm right wing now. I'm not the one who's changed. Well, and and in Silicon Valley, you're a right wing maniac. You know, the the free speech thing is really interesting because I push on this all the time. I'm a guy that's now been deplatformed and replatformed four fucking times. Okay, and so I push on this free speech thing all the time. And interestingly enough, a lot of people who appear to tilt left say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're for free speech, but you can't say this and you can't say hate speech and you can't right. this and, and we want to police your language. And, and it's like, well, you're right. Like, look, I get we might want to say there's certain things you're not allowed to say. You and I, for example, are not allowed to say the N word. OK, I got it. That's a cultural thing. It's a societal thing. There's a reason for it. I think we understand why. And it's fine for a black person to say it in, in, in hip hop lyrics, but you and I are not allowed to say it. Okay, great. I can live with that. I don't give a shit. I don't need to say that word. And so there's some things that sort of uh, society decides are appropriate and inappropriate. That's all fine. But this sort of um, not believing in free speech. And when I tweet things like the antidote to speech you don't like is more free speech. And people say, well, what about hate speech? And I say, well, who decides what's hate speech? And they go, oh, man. Then they call me a fucking fascist and a Nazi. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Canada for fuck's sakes. Yeah. So what, what I, um, you know, on the free speech issue, what I want to do is defer to the Supreme Court's definition of these categories instead of letting social media companies make it up as they go along. The truth is that you could, there's a, a Supreme Court decision called Chaplinsky in which they said they, that you can limit 
quote unquote fighting words. This would include ethnic or racial slurs that would basically provoke people into a fight. Those are not, that is not protected speech under the First Amendment. So I think you could have a social media moderation policy consistent with First Amendment principles that did not allow that type of, you know, racist or uh, you know, racist or ethnic slurs or harassing behavior. I've actually written quite a bit about that, that just because you believe in free speech doesn't mean anything goes. The issue we have now is not that on social networks is not that uh, people are getting away with, um, with, with that, that type of speech. The issue is that these social networks are outlawing entire categories of thought and opinion. So if you express the wrong opinion about COVID or vaccines or where the virus might have come from, um, or, you know, if you question climate change or, you know, or <laughs> can, I can I tell you how I got deplatformed where- off Twitter? I, I forget who it was, but it was a, it was a liberal pundit and he was bitching about, you know, a bunch of the, uh, the things that are on going on on the right. And I forget exactly what it was, but I responded with, well, once you understand that, uh, Bill Gates has a Bigfoot farm where he trains them to install, on the 5G misters that give us the virus so he can make money from the vaccine and implant chips in all of us, then everything becomes clear. Well, the bots clearly at Twitter don't get sarcasm or uh, attempted humor, uh, failed as it might have been. And they immediately took me down. And I, I didn't even remember why. I'm like, why? Do, what? Right. And the interesting thing was they said, you can contest this tweet or you can take it down. So I contested it. Nothing happened. Days went by. So I went, okay, fuck it. I'll go back in and see if I can, if they'll still let me delete it. And I deleted it and I was back on Twitter. And it made me think, you know, it must be brutal being a comedian today. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Well, the, the, the crazy thing is, why do they make you delete it? yourself like why go through that fiction like it's your choice whether to delete it or not like why don't they just delete it for you and allow you to keep being in the platform it's, it's almost like they want you to confess like it's a show trial or something and they want you to be the one to delete it like you're like you're admitting you're doing something wrong i don't know the whole thing is just completely bizarre um but um but in any event yeah look i agree with you on free speech i guess, I guess my point about the flipping is that so many of these positions that I hold, I thought I was traditionally liberal on, you know, if you go back to the 1960s, I'm sure I would have been protesting against the Vietnam War, you know, um, I would have had suspicion of our, of what the government was telling us about that conflict. I would have had, um, you know, suspicion towards the, the quote unquote, the man. And, and I, and I would have, I would have opposed, uh, crackdowns on, on free speech. And, you know, but the people who hold those opinions today are not the right, although some do, but, but it's by and large, it's the establishment wing of the Democratic Party now. So it's just completely like backwards and it's, it's just completely flipped. But, but just to bring it back to Ukraine for a second, just on, so on Obama, the other thing he completely got right. Um, so not only was Obama completely 100% right about the Iraq war and what a disaster that was. He was also right about our policy towards Ukraine. So back in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, um, Obama said that we should not escalate because he said that 
Ukraine was not a vital interest of the United States. It was a vital interest of Russia. And therefore, Russia would always be able to maintain what he called escalatory dominance, meaning that whatever we did, they would basically come over the top and keep escalating, which is exactly what's happened. We keep thinking that we're going to we're going to basically uh, change Putin's incentive structure. Like we can create enough costs. We can basically create enough sanctions. We can create enough punishment. We can, you know, create enough material losses that we can change his behavior. But he's always going to keep escalating because fundamentally he sees this conflict as being existential to him, to his survival and to the survival of his state and to his country. So he is always going to come over the top. The idea that we can change his behavior is just wrong. Obama understood that. And so the other line that Obama had about Ukraine was, this is a case where we have to be very clear about what we're willing to fight and, and go to war for. And that basically is it. This is, you know, this is, we have to be very clear about what our vital interests are. And, um, and so there were a lot of these neocons were in his administration back in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, and they were pushing Obama to come over the top and help take back Crimea. And he's pulled the plug on the whole operation and said no. And the weird thing is that the same people who defended Obama back then are now leading the charge for Biden pursuing the 180 degree opposite policy. Obama had a very restrained, realistic, sensible policy towards Ukraine, which again, recognized that at its root, Russia would always have more of an interest there than we would. And they've replaced it instead with this Biden policy, which is incredibly risky. So why, why doesn't Barack call his old buddy Joe up and go, hey, Joe, remember back in the day? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's um, well, remember, remember what uh, Obama reportedly said about Biden is um, it wasn't something like, um, you know, you can never uh, trust Joe not to F things up or something like that. Oh, God. Did he really say that? I don't remember that. That's I terrible. That. Yeah. Wait, I got <laughs> to get can... the exact quote for you. Um, that would be great. So so uh, we always like to talk about American politics, of course, and, and we're staring down these. Um, oh, here's the exact line. Here's the quote. OK, got it. Obama reportedly said, don't underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. Wow. Yeah. I wonder what uh, issue specifically. It might have been Ukraine that triggered that. Remember, you know, isn't this when Biden was? I mean, why couldn't the United States try to do something absolutely legendary here and get Barack and get W? My my guess is Jimmy Carter's probably not able to do this kind of stuff, but get our ex presidents involved and send them over and Clinton and send them over there to try to negotiate a peace deal. I mean, it's been done before. Yeah. We've used ex-presidents very strategically in the past to do these kinds of things. Obama would have been very good. Right. If you want to send Obama over there, if you want to send W over there, if you want to send Clinton over, I mean. Yeah. Listen, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's very curious, but, um, you know, see, there's, there's a long history of this conflict before February 24th. And, and the problem is the American people haven't really been educated about what happened prior to Putin's invasion. All they think that happened is that on February 24th, Putin went mad and invaded the country. And there's been a long prehistory, a long buildup of and an escalatory spiral that's been happening for really since 2008, uh, and, and especially in 2014, that precipitated this crisis. It's been building for a long time. And, you know, Biden 
when he was vice president, Ukraine was part of his portfolio, like Obama gave it to him. And he was managing Ukrainian affairs and the State Department and the ambassador were basically reporting to him. And he was deeply involved in Ukrainian policy. And the thing that specifically happened back in 2014 that precipitated this whole mess is that we were behind a regime change operation in uh, in this, this 2014 coup, is that basically you had the democratically elected president of Russia, this guy Yanukovych, who was slightly pro-Russian, but he was just trying to maintain a balance. He was trying to maintain good relations with both Russia and the West. And what happened is that there was a coup that was basically perpetrated with the backing of the US State Department and presumably the CIA. And the and Victoria Newland, who was our undersecretary of state, was recorded on a phone call picking the new leader of Ukraine. And it was in the wake of that that the Russians just basically, I mean, they they hit the roof after this because they saw us as meddling in the affairs right in the, of Ukraine, right in their backyard. Imagine if Russia had been meddling in the affairs of Mexico and basically help topple a Mexican president and install one more to their liking. Well, we would be irate over that. And similarly, the Russians were irate. And it was in the wake of that, within weeks, within days, that Putin then annexed seized Crimea. Why was he able to do it so quickly within days? Because the Russians have a giant naval base at Sevastopol. So it's located there. It's the home of their Black Sea fleet. This is why the Russians regard Crimea as such a vital interest is because if they lose Crimea, they lose the Black Sea fleet. And if they lose that, that is just, that is a, a issue that is existential to them. They see it as tantamount to their survival that they do not lose the Black Sea fleet. Well, because so, they're such a, a landlock's the wrong word, but. Right. They, they are surround, you know, unlike the United States that's surrounded by Canada and Mexico and way more water, they, they are not, right? And, right? and that, those oceans protect the U.S. in a way that very few other countries uh, are protected. So it, it, it makes sense that, you know, they, they need access to the ports. Right. So, so, so apparently what happened is in the wake of, of the 2014, this sort of Maidan revolution or coup, depending on how how you want to see it um uh the the russians uh seized crimea um it was a relatively bloodless operation i think three people died because they already had troops there and then in addition to that they started funding separatists rush ethnically russian separatists in this donbass region and you got an eight-year civil war in which fourteen thousand people died there were attempts to resolve the civil war through a process known as the minsk accords which ukraine signed Ukraine, Russia, I think it was France and Germany um, mediated, and they signed the Minsk Accords. And what the Minsk Accords provided is that these Russian separatist areas, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, would become semi-autonomous. They would still be part of Ukraine, but they would be given more local autonomy. And unfortunately, the Minsk Accords were never respected, and they were never really supported by the United States. And so it contributed to this festering situation in eastern Ukraine. And this is why this Donbass region was always going to be one of these messy regions. It's an ethnically divided region, a la the Balkans. And there was never going to be a perfect solution to this. Um, the best solution would have been for the Donbass to stay part of Ukraine, but with more local autonomy given to the Russian speakers there. And instead, 
what Kiev did is they passed a law banning the speaking of the Russian language in this area. So they did things to inflame the situation. And I think that in terms of, again, preventing the toppling of the, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky regime, I think that served the principle of self-determination. But this idea that um, Crimea or Donbass uh, should, should um, you know, they, they were always going to be complicated. You know, Crimea, again, self-determination would say that it should go with Russia. And on Donbass, again, it's unclear. I don't know which way that vote would break if you were actually to hold a vote. It was always going to be messy. And you're better off with a, co a compromise like the Minsk Accords, which basically would have given some more greater autonomy to this region. Unfortunately, we never supported it. And now we're in the situation we're in. And um, and the problem is when Biden was vice president, these were all the policies that he, you know, th these policies go back to 2014, if not before. So, you know, and it feels like Biden finally realizes where all this has, has led, which is to the brink of war with Russia. So I just don't know how we're going to back off these policies uh, and find a compromise when for the last eight years, Biden himself has been behind these policies. This is what this is what is so difficult about the situation. I think if you had a different president in there who could just look at the situation with fresh eyes, what they would say is, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a second. We're on the brink of nuclear war. This is a Cuban Missile Crisis situation. What is the vital interest of the United States that we're fighting for that is so important to justify a Cuban Missile Crisis situation?" Well, there isn't one. So if Biden could just look at the situation with fresh eyes, I'm sure we could figure a way out. But I'm just worried he's beholden to all of his old positions. And that's what really scares me. I also the, the look and I, I'm I'm glad Trump didn't get reelected. So and I'm a radical independent and I vote Republican and, and Democrat. I will be voting Republican in, in, in the next election for um, governor of California. I don't know who, maybe you'll tell me who I should vote for. <laughs> That's a different conversation. None of the above. <laughs> yeah. Well, fuck. I mean, <laughs> the hamster would be better than the guy we got now. Um, but, but how's the breakthrough going to happen or is it, is it possible that the Biden administration is going to, is going to have a, turn a new leaf here? My fear about these comments that he's making, Cuban Missile Crisis, Armageddon, is that he's doing them for also domestic political reasons. So we all know that, at least in part, YW got reelected for a second term was he was viewed as a wartime president. There was a war going on, so it's factual. And he made sure that everybody understood he was a wartime president because in the history of the United States, it's highly unusual for the uh, electorate to vote out a wartime president. So the cynic in me says that some of this stuff is his way of saying, hey, I'm a wartime president and you don't want to change horses uh, midstream here. Uh, but am I being overly cynical? Well, maybe not cynical, but I think that um, the, the, the reason why I'm glad Biden said what he said is because I think it, it's important to educate the American public about the risks that we're facing over there. And it seems to me that people are just going about their business. Like, it doesn't feel like we're in a Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred, everybody was gathered around their TV set. They were, people were very worried. And it just seems like people are just blithely going around their business. They don't realize that we're 
potentially at risk of, you know, a, a nuclear use in Ukraine, never mind a nuclear war. So I think that actually it's important for the president to educate people about the situation. And I'm also glad that he realizes the situation we're in. What I don't know is whether he's willing to reverse course on the policies that got us here. Uh, because the only way to get out of this is to find an acceptable compromise. Remember how JFK got us out of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was being given all this hardline advice by the hawks, all the generals, all the military advisors. They all were telling him to engage in, like, hit the hit the sites in Cuba. Uh, you know, uh, break the, um, you know, defend the uh, embargo of Cuba if, uh, with potentially nuclear. Weapons. I mean, we were very, very close to you know getting in a nuclear war, and JFK had a very sort of cool and sly temperament, and he rejected the advice he was getting and the heart with its horrible implications of a nuclear war, and instead he dispatched his brother Bobby to go open back channel negotiations with the Soviets, and Bobby cut a secret deal with the Soviets to pull our Jupiter missiles out of Turkey in exchange for the Russians backing down on Cuba. And that was the creative compromise that he cut. Now, one, I think, interesting fact about it is that Bobby or, or JFK told the Soviets, listen, I can't publicly come out and say that we're pulling the Jupiters out of Turkey. You're going to have to trust. We're going to do that in six months. And I'm going to de deny the quid pro quo. Uh, the reason why is there are all these hotheads in Congress, and all these hardliners in the you know military and so forth, who, who would have denounced any quid pro quo? They wanted to go to the mattresses over this thing, and I think today we all look back and say, "Thank God that JFK was willing to be flexible that way." It didn't matter; the Jupiters were coming out of Turkey anyway. So, um, but basically, JFK was willing to compromise. That was the right solution. But but the important point they're making about him lying about the quid pro quo is he felt he had to because there were so many uncompromising people. You know, people get in these chimp frenzies. You know, when you're in like a war situation and you start hearing the beating of the war drums, I mean, humans have been evolutionarily trained to go into a chimp frenzy and basically, you know, become like a, a mob who wants to, I mean, because it's how you win wars. I mean, evolution. Yeah, somebody says... Somebody says shitty to you and or your wife and you go, yeah, motherfucker, right? That's what humans do. And then, of course, we understand this from a business perspective. There's the fallacy of this sunk cost notion, right? Well, we've lost all this blood and treasure. It can't be for nothing. And so let's invest more blood and treasure. Right. You know, I mean, how many times have we seen right. products that are never going to work or marketing programs that are never going to work? You know, these things we go, well, we've invested all this stuff. Stop investing and move on. But it, this sunk cost thing coupled with the, oh, yeah, the, the, the bully just said something to me in the, in the, in the schoolyard. Right. Exactly. So, so, you know, we puff up our chest. Exactly. I mean, look, people, when you get in these situations in which your tribe is threatened, you, you again, you, people have this tendency to shut out logic. The eyes roll into the back of their heads and they become, you know, like uh, angry primates or something. I mean, look, you look back at the Cuban Missile Crisis today, 60 years later, everybody can see that JFK did the right thing cutting that deal. And yet he couldn't tell people exactly what he was doing. 60 years from now, if Biden cuts a deal, how do you think history is going to regard him positively? 
because the people there aren't suffering through some sort of frenzy. The other thing about Cuba that's important, I think, to note is as part of this whole discussion, JFK did not insist that they had to stop being a communist country. He did not insist on regime change. He didn't insist on any of that stuff. Right. And so we had this 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 uh, communist country sitting not that far off our coast with deep, deep ties to Russia. And JFK said, in order to keep world peace, in order for lots of Americans not to die, we're just going to have to get comfortable to have a communist Cuba right here with deep, deep ties. And if everybody stays Fonzie, we're going to leave this place alone. And that's what right. he did. And we had this this right. communist country that is still a communist country sitting, you know, relatively not that far off Miami. Right. No, you're right. Like, we didn't say regime right. change has to happen. We didn't say Cuba right. has to become a democracy. We didn't say Cuba has to adopt a Western democratic uh, capitalistic system. We didn't do right. that. No, you're right. And that's why we never tried to invade uh, Cuba again, because that was part of the quid pro quo is, okay, we will leave Cuba alone, but they cannot be part of your military alliance. We cannot have your weapons 90 miles off our shores, especially, you know, nuclear tip missiles. So that was the deal. Um, by the way, we can understand today why uh, America was so upset that the Russians would try to put, you know, uh, missiles right off our shore. And it was a good thing. The, the best part of, well, I'd say the other, the flip side of what JFK did that was really important was keeping those missiles out because that really would have affected our security. We would not have slept as well at night knowing that there, that there are nuclear tip missiles right offshore. So it was necessary to confront the Soviets, but it was also necessary to find a diplomatic solution and cut a deal. So both sides of it were important. But, but as we look at the situation in Ukraine today, why it seems like we just can't understand why the Russians would feel so existentially threatened by us converting Ukraine into a member of NATO. And, you know, if you go back and look at um, Putin's speeches on this topic, and really it's not just Putin, but all Russian elites since 2008, since we announced our intention to bring Ukraine into NATO, they've all said the same thing, which is if Ukraine joins NATO, it means we will have American troops, weapons, and bases directly on our most vulnerable border throughout we've, through which we've been attacked throughout history. And specifically, the thing that upsets them the most are these American missile batteries that could hit Moscow in under 10 minutes. And those missile batteries could be equipped even with nuclear tip missiles. So this is a thing they have always regarded this issue of Ukraine joining NATO as absolutely existential for them, the same way that we saw Cuba as existential for us. And yet we've been totally unwilling to engage in any sort of compromise over this issue. This is why they're willing to go to the mattresses. And this is why we have not been able to deter Russia through sanctions or through even through military losses, because they regard this as existential for them. Yes. And then on top of it, not only do they regard the, the threat of American missiles right on their border as existential, on top of it, we have threatened to knock them out of the ranks of the great powers like Secretary Austin said, to weaken them to the point where they basically won't have a, a military anymore. And Biden has called for Putin's ouster. So we have, have brought existential threat on top of existential threat on top of existential threat, a threat to 
their head of state, the threat to their country, their military. They are playing for all the marbles over there because we have made it a game for all the marbles. But but that is not in America's interest. That is the last thing we want is to be playing for all the marbles. We do not have a vital interest over there. But you know, David, a lot of people in America think what you just said is uh, either an exaggeration or inaccurate in that what's really going on here is um, this is all a Russia slash Putin driven set of thinking and activity and so forth. And and uh, we did not cause this problem. Well, look, Putin clearly invaded, and so the blood is on his hands, okay? But the question is, why did he invade? And, you know, the, the problem with the conventional explanation is they just think that Putin just suddenly snapped and went crazy on February 24th, and they've memory-holed all of the prehistory of this conflict. Listen, if you go back to the 1990s, you had great foreign policy thinkers like George Kennan, who architected our Cold War containment policy. He warned that if we keep expanding NATO up to Russia's border, it'd be highly provocative to them. And um, Admiral William Perry, who was Clinton's Secretary of Defense in the 1990s, almost resigned over NATO expansion because he thought it was so provocative towards Russia and eventually undermine our relationship. Then you fast forward to 2008, when at, at the Bucharest NATO meeting, we put forward this declaration that we wanted to bring Ukraine into NATO. You had um, Bill Burns, who's, who's Biden's own CIA director, wrote, he was then our ambassador to Moscow. And he wrote a memo back to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, it was a famous memo called Nyet means Nyet. And what he said is that the entire Russian elite speaks with one mind on this, that this is a red line for Russian security. They will absolutely have none of it. And it's not just Putin. It's even, it's, it's certainly the hardliners, but even the so-called liberal reformers, everybody is against this. And you had Angela Merkel say in 2008 that Putin will regard this as an act of war if you're serious about trying to bring Ukraine into NATO. And then in 2014, you had, um, you know, eminent foreign policy scholars. This is in the wake of Crimea, where people realized the dangerous game that we were playing. You had people like Mearsheimer, the international relations scholar, and Henry Kissinger both say that the way to dial down this um, escalating conflict was for Ukraine to remain neutral, for it not to become part of NATO. Uh, Kissinger had an excellent piece in the Washington Post, an op-ed that you can go back and read. Mearsheimer gave a speech at University of Chicago, which has gone viral and been watched 27 million, million times, the famous Primrose Pass speech. So you had all these eminent foreign policy scholars warn us that the path we were taking towards Russia was highly provocative and could even lead to war. And yet, when the war finally came, Anybody who wants to remind us of this prehistory of how we got here is accused of Putin talking points. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I believe that the reason why people say that is because they don't want to admit that this policy that we've been running for the last 14 years was a foolish policy. So instead, they want to discredit and silence and censor as being unpatriotic or a traitor. Anybody who reminds them that this situation was completely predictable and therefore avoidable. And, and am I naive and idealistic when I say it's possible to have a democratic Ukraine that is independent, that is vital? Uh, you and I, as people in the tech industry, know very well that there's incredible engineering talent and technology entrepreneurship there. Many Silicon Valley-based companies have um, offices there or deal with 
you know, contract development services and the like. And it's, a, it, you know, it was a thriving economy. And so uh, is it not possible to have a thriving democratic Ukraine? Yes. Give Russia Scooby snacks so that so they feel that their national interests are at least somewhat in check. And, and most importantly, look, we all know in every war, in every standoff of any kind, in a business argument with somebody in a meeting, if you eviscerate them, you're going to create an enemy. If you allow them a soft off ramp where they don't look stupid or terrible, you know, it's a lot fucking better. Why make enemies? And so is it naive to think that if we just had a little bit of compromise here, allowed him to say that he achieved something and and got back to business of trying to build and support the U.S. can support. And I understand why the U.S. wants to support an independent, democratic, thriving Ukraine. Like, I don't know. Am I a naive idiot? No, I mean, this is listen, if you go back to Mearsheimer's talk from 2015, where he says that. The United States is leading Ukraine down the primrose path, and the result is that Ukraine's going to get wrecked. That was the that famous speech. What Mearsheimer said is, listen, here's what we should do with Ukraine. We should make them n- neutral. Okay, so militarily, they're not on either side. They remain a buffer state between Russia on one side and NATO on the other. However, we invest in economic development, and they can become part of the EU over time. And Putin for what it's worth, I don't know if you can trust him, but he said that EU was okay with him, potentially. So you invest in economic development, you respect the rights of these ethnic Russians in these divided territories, the Donbass, you implement the Minsk Accords, and you work something out on Crimea, respecting the right of self-rule for those people. That was always the plan that was going to lead to peace. And we rejected every single element by we, I mean, the State Department and the official foreign policy establishment in the U.S., we rejected every single element of that plan with the result that these two countries are now at war and the United States might get pulled into it and it could go nuclear. Now the question is, well, how do we get out from here? I will tell you this. We will never get a a deal as good as the deal that we could have had before all this bloodshed because everyone's become radicalized. And so, you know, Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall. You're not going to be able to put it together again in the same way. The ideal deal would be what I just described that we could have had back in 2015. And quite frankly, we could have had a year ago. We could have had a year ago. Now, I don't know what kind of deal we're going to get because these two countries have been at war. They've both lost. Each side's probably lost. No one knows because they're both lying about their casualties, but probably 50,000 people each on each side. Tremendous destruction. Tremendous hatred now. Um, I mean, you, Ukraine... Uh, is pointing to mass graves and and pointing out war crimes and demanding trials at the Hague. Meanwhile, in Russia, you had the daughter of their most eminent philosopher, this guy Dugan, was killed in a car bomb, assassinated. And the, even the U.S. said there's a New York Times article about how uh, the Ukrainian state services did it. So there's been tremendous animosity now on both sides. I don't know how you're ever going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but I think we clearly need to try and prevent this thing from escalating any further because it's getting to the point now where the United States could be affected. Our own security could be affected. And I don't think the American people want that. I think the American people want to support Ukraine and their desire for self-determination. I think they're willing to give them aid. I think they're even willing to give them weapons they can fight for their own freedom. But we are not up for joining a suicide pact. If that's the deal, if the deal is we got to go to nuclear war over this region in 
Eastern Ukraine, the American people never voted for that. That is not what they want. Yes. <laughs> now, I would, if you still have a little bit of time, I'd love to talk about Twitter and Elon, and I'd love to talk about the midterms, but I also want to be respectful of your time. I know you have uh, categories, companies, and industries to go create. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this might be a good place to talk because we've been going at it for almost an hour and a half. You know, I can't really talk. I, unfortunately, I can't really talk about the Twitter thing because I'm under, I've been subpoenaed and Oh, you've been subpoenaed, right. And deposition in that matter. And my lawyers don't want me to talk about it. So I'll be happy to talk Fair about enough. it once the whole thing is over one way or another. And maybe I can come Fair back enough. and we can talk more about that. I, I, I would love to. And if the deal happens, I'd love to have that whole conversation because I, for what it's worth, you know, a lot of people say a lot of bad things about Twitter. And I understand why I get all the bots and all the bullshit and the trolls and all. I understand all that stuff. And I've been on the back end of a bunch of that horrible shit. And you, as you have been much, uh, way more than me. But I think Twitter's fucking amazing. And, you know, Twitter, when this war broke out, I remember some high profile CNN person, I forget who it was now, came out and said something about how awesome their coverage was and how proud he was and whatever. And I said, yeah, you know, who's been really awesome at covering the fucking war? Twitter. I think Twitter is a gem. Yeah. I, I never thought that social media was dangerous until I saw the chimp frenzy on Twitter basically advocating for World War Three, or I call it woke War Three. Um, I mean, you have this, which is your latest piece in Newsweek. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you literally have the same Twitter mob that we saw form to cancel people or to, you know, go bananas about some issue on domestic politics or other. Um, it's now formed to basically beat the drums of war to world to towards, you know, actions that I believe will could lead to nuclear war. And I call it woke war three. I, it's just insane. Um, it would be a good thing if, um, Twitter could get all the um, bots and sock puppets off because I do think it is distorting the conversation quite a bit. So in any event, that's a topic for a longer discussion. Let's save that for next time. We'll sa we'll save that for yeah. after some of the dust settles. Yeah. So what do you think happens in November? Last time you were talking about a, a GOP wave and, and now it might not be a wave and but now it's tilting a little bit back and some of these races are, are tilting. You know, I was just reading yesterday on, or two days ago on five thirty. what's that website called? I've always remember that 536 or, or, or what was it? 538. Yeah. It's a bunch of numbers. It's a genius website, but they were talking about how, um, you know, Fetterman had a much bigger lead a couple months ago and now it was getting real close with Oz and, and that there's been a lot of tightening, so to speak, uh, in races where Democrats were leading, at the same time, I'm reading and hearing things about how uh, women and young women are, are registering to vote at record levels and polls are suggesting they're going to vote Democrat because of what the Supreme Court did. You know, and so there's a lot of fog right now in terms of trying to figure out what's going to happen here. What, what's your current assessment, David? Well, I, I think the Republicans are going to do well. Is it going to be quite the wave that it looked like back in June? Probably not. The, the two things that Democrats have going for them are Dobbs and Jobs. Uh, Dobbs being the Supreme Court decision on abortion, and then the Jobs picture still looks pretty good. But that being said, uh, the economy seems to me like it's falling apart uh, very rapidly. The stock market is reflecting that. And um, so I tend to think that over the next uh, month or two that Things just keep deteriorating, and that'll that'll accrue to the benefit of the Republicans. Uh, I think on the issues that matter the most to voters, which are the economy, inflation, border, crime, 
uh, Republicans have the advantage on those issues, and I think they'll do well. But maybe we should leave it at that and and revisit in a couple of months, or actually, it's only one month now. So maybe we re- maybe we should do yeah, a post election debrief. But um, but let's save that for next time. All right, David, let's leave it there and uh, let's um, let's uh, hopefully come back after the election and and reassess and and hopefully by then you'll be able to talk a little bit more about. Twitter and, and we can talk about the startup world and some of the other things that we like to talk about when we're not totally. worried about. It's a little hard to think about anything else when when you're when the president's talking about Armageddon. Yes. Thank you, David. I appreciate our conversations as always. And uh, I also appreciate that you uh, that, that um, Montclair hat. How many of those hats have you think you've sold? <laughs> you know, I, are you the greatest marketing organization for Montclair uh, ball caps ever? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Yeah, it's turned into a thing. So now I feel like obligated to do it. They should do like a special, you know, the way they do with athletes and stuff, special shoes and shit. Somebody they should do a special a, a swag bag. So yeah, and I'm, I think I might be getting free Montclair stuff. Yeah, well, there you go. That's a start. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David. All right. Thank you so much, brother. See ya. All right. Thanks, Chris. Well, there he is, the legendary David Sachs. And whether you agree with him or not, um, one thing I know for sure, he stimulates real thinking. And uh, for that, I deeply appreciate him and for many other reasons. Please go ahead and share this episode with the people that you uh, love, respect, and admire right now. And also know that we deeply appreciate your social media shares. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It means the world to everybody who's involved with this podcast. My friends at Clary are the world's first revenue platform that empowers you to collaborate on and govern the entire enterprise revenue process. Now, marketing, sales, customer success, and finance teams can work together on revenue. Learn how to run revenue today at Clary.com. That's C-L-A-R-I.com. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E.net. And if you're a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on some leading podcasts, my friends at Interview Valet will help you do that and much more by helping you market your uh, guesting on podcasts. Check out interviewvalet.com. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We must warn you, the creators and producers of this podcast were probably consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. You can check him out on the internet at jason.fyi. Uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox um, do our technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon and the Bobus Brothers, uh, RJ and EX, do our web development. And Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. If you must send us email, you can reach us at blackhole at lockhead.com. Don't forget, Johnny Cash was right. Listen to the Ramones. Please teach real dialogue. And uh, Frank Sonnenberg reminds us, quote, free speech and debate are essential in our search for the truth. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vladdy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing uh, your life with us. Uh, Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.